0: We're going to be in Jonah chapter 1. I'm just going to read uh, back a little bit so we get the background of the the story and where we're at. Starting in Jonah chapter 1 verse 4. Word of the Lord says this. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord! O Lord! Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The word substitution means to have a person or thing take the place or the function of another. It is a very important biblical concept that we are going to reflect on and glory in more more broadly on Good Friday. Substitution is a theme throughout the pages of Scripture beginning right in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, verse 7 records for us, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, they felt the pangs for the very first time, pangs of insecurity and pangs of shame that they had never experienced before. And they did what all of us do when we feel such things they tried to hide. They covered themselves. And while God rightly judged Adam and Eve for their sin of eating of the tree that he told them not to, for their rebellion against him, his response to their insecurity and their shame was grace. And in his grace, we see in the garden For the very first time, the first substitution occurs. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 21, it tells us that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God responded by taking the skins of an animal making garments and covering Adam and Eve, removing the insecurity, removing the shame that they were feeling, at least as a result of their nakedness. And this act was a foreshadowing of the sacrificial system that would be instituted by God for his people, a system that is based on substitution. That system was later explicitly given to Israel through the laws of Moses, It was a system that involved an animal being substituted or taking the place of a guilty person in order to bear the punishment of that person's sins. In Leviticus chapter 16, on what was known as the Day of Atonement, which occurred once a year and is actually better known now as Yom Kippur, Aaron, the high priest of Israel, was directed by the Lord to lay both of his hands on the head of a goat, which would become a scapegoat and he would bear the sins of the people. The high priest would confess over the goat all of the sins of the people of Israel, putting them symbolically on the head of the goat, that he was guilty, and then the priest would take the goat out of the camp and send him into the wilderness, signifying the removal of sin from God's people. During the plagues of Egypt, the Lord commanded the people of Israel, to kill a lamb and to put its blood on their door frames so that the angel of the Lord would pass over their homes. Essentially, the lamb was sacrificed, becoming a substitute for the lives of the firstborn sons of Israel. We see in all of these examples the concept of substitution. Substitution. It is seen all throughout God's word. And of course, all of these examples foreshadowed the work of Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior who hung on a cross in the place of you and I. Paying the price for our sin. As our substitute, Jesus Christ bore what you and I should have bore. 2 Corinthians 5:21 Paul says for the sake for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God This morning as we look at the book of Jonah, we are going to see the concept of substitution play out, though we are going to see it imperfectly because of the imperfections of Jonah that we've already seen as we've started to go through this story but we can get a glimpse of substitution. What we get a glimpse of is this Christian call that we have, that every single one of us as followers of Jesus is given, that we are called to love others in the deepest and most profound way that we possibly can. And that happens through substitution and through sacrifice. And so let's pray that the Lord would speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, As we look at your word and we look at the example of Jonah and what's happening in this story, Father, help us to look at the greater context of substitution and what you call us to through Jesus Christ and what we see most gloriously in our Savior. Father, I pray that as we look at your word, you speak to your people. Father, you have called us to be a a counter-cultural people and living in this way is one of the major ways that makes us different than the world. Father, we don't want to just hear a word this morning. We want to hear your word and we want to be changed by it. Father, I pray that that is everyone's hope in here this morning. And so Lord, as we Look unto your scriptures, this living word that is good for exhortation, and for building up. God, we ask, work in us, please. Do a mighty work, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are uh, we're in, in week four of our series, Through Jonah. And uh, I just read the, the first, first portion of the chapter for us, so, so we can refresh our minds of, of what's happening in the story of Jonah. But we're going to look this morning specifically at verse 10 to 16. And so we we see in the story that by verse 10, the sailors that are on the boat have determined through their interrogation of Jonah that he is the one that's responsible for the divinely caused storm that is ravaging their ship and threatening to sink them all. So they've, they've come to that conclusion. And since the men have determined that Jonah is the one that's responsible. The next step is to figure out what do they need to do in order to bring this storm to an end? How do we end what's happening to us? They know what's going on. Now they need to know how do we stop it. And so verse 10 gives us this glimpse Into the mindset of the men when they find out that Jonah is the cause of the storm and he's running from the Lord. Verse 10 tells us that the men were exceedingly afraid and said to Jonah, what is this that you have done? When Jonah tells the men that the storm is a result of him running from the Lord's presence and that he got them mixed up in his escape, the men become terrified. In fact, the the Hebrew that's translated exceedingly afraid in the ESV depicts that when Jonah told the men uh, what he had done, their fear actually increased beyond what they were already experiencing due to the storm itself. To the point where their fear became absolute. It became pure terror. The Hebrew gives this, this picture that they were feeling and experiencing nothing else because their fear was all-consuming and I don't know if some of you know what that's like if you've ever been in a situation where where your fear is just so all-consuming it feels overwhelming it feels kind of paralyzing where you can't think straight it's like your mind is overloaded and it just kind of freezes up and and this is what the men were feeling And, and that makes sense you know because remember that they're experienced sailors we've already looked at this They know what it is to be caught in a storm on a ship, but this storm that they were in was so intense and came on so quickly that it terrified even these experienced sailors. And so they're thinking, if the storm that we're in is this scary then it makes sense to be even more terrified of the God who divinely caused this storm. And so they want out of this situation. And so next they asked Jonah, what do we do to escape this situation? And in verse 11, they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. They're looking at Jonah going, how do we get out of this situation? And it's interesting because there's two layers to the sailor's question here. Because the the first layer is obvious. They ask Jonah how to fix the problem because Jonah's the one who created the problem in the first place. But the second layer to that question is that Jonah is the only one among them who knew and understood the God who was behind the storm. He was this God's prophet. So he must have understood him well. And in comparison, these these pagan sailors who he was with up to this point likely had no idea who this God Yahweh was. If it was the false God, say Baal, they would know what to do in that situation. But they don't know what Yahweh requires in order to turn his wrath away from their ship. So Jonah not only was the cause, but as the only one who knows God, he would be the only one to know how to appease the Lord. And so the men, very practically, yet. they they ask this very practical yet deeply theological question. What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? Basically, what they're asking Jonah is, what does Yahweh require to turn away his wrath from us? That's the, the theological question under their practical question. What does he require to turn his wrath away from our ship? And that is, A deeply important and pertinent question. It is a question that is relevant to every human being. Every person needs to know that this question has eternal consequences and eternal significance. And for those of us who know the answer to this question, we must tell others. Because Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, We were by nature deserving of wrath. This is because Romans 5.12 says sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. And so as those whose nature is sinful, deserving of wrath the, wrath, the question, what does God require to turn away his wrath from us, is deeply personal and deeply affecting for every single person. And the answer to that question is sacrifice. God requires sacrifice for his wrath to be satisfied. Jonah, who lived under the law of Moses and the system of substitutionary sacrifice, knew well what the Lord required for sin. And so keep that in mind as you read verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah knows God requires sacrifice for the judgment and ultimately forgiveness of sin and rebellion. Jonah, knowing this, offers himself up as a sacrifice. We see in this situation, Jonah places himself in the position of the substitute. His life, so that God's wrath may subside in order to spare the life of the sailors. And I want to pause here because, as I said at the beginning, we see substitution here, but it's imperfect. Because Jonah is imperfect. And I want to consider, why is Jonah doing this? Because Jonah's response seems a bit out of character with what we have seen from Jonah so far. Right, he's been pretty selfish up to this point, if we're honest. It would have been likely mere minutes before this was happening, that he was asleep on the boat, uncaring. And as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, he has shown a general lack of care toward the other men on the boat. And so in my study time that last week when I was going over this, I was, I was asking the question, what is Jonah's mindset here? Like, like, has he suddenly changed his perspective? Has he, has he repented? Has he seen the error in his ways? What's going on that caused him to all of a sudden offer himself up as a sacrifice to be thrown into the sea? And so here's what I think is going on. I think that it is very likely that from the beginning, from the moment that Jonah started fleeing the Lord's presence, he knew he was guilty. Don't we know that we are guilty when we run from the presence of the Lord? Like, we know... But, but like us, you know, even though Jonah wasn't unaware of the potential consequences of his decision, he knew running from God was rebellious. I think he understood that he was guilty, but he's trying to ignore it. Don't we try to do the same thing? When we run from God, when we're disobedient from God, we know that we're being rebellious to God, but we try really hard to, dis- to, to ignore it and to push it away to justify and so I think for Jonah his guilt has been staring him in the face but he's ignoring it he's trying to justify it away and in this moment he's finally starting to admit he's guilty now I will not go as far as to say that Jonah is repentant at this point because I don't think Jonah is repentant at this point yet There's no indication that the posture of Jonah's heart has changed. And when you jump forward and read chapter 4, you see a heart that is still very hard as he laments over God's mercy for Nineveh. What I do think is that while he is not repentant towards the Lord, Jonah is starting to show some regard for the other men on the boat. And I wonder if the exceeding fear that the men were experiencing, as described in verse 10, is having an effect on Jonah's heart and his posture towards them. Right? Like could seeing the fear in their eyes and hearing their distress, knowing that he was the one responsible for all of it, be softening his heart to the men. I think it's very likely, I think, an individual who would be able to be in that situation, be the see the terrified eyes and the terrified hearts of the other men and not be able to feel something would have a pretty seared conscience. So I think Jonah's heart is softening towards the men as he's seeing their response to what's happening and it leads to his response in verse 12 and I think his response in verse 12 shows that he's starting to have regard for the other men on the boat. He shows for for the first time concern for them. He says to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He's finally showing concern for the others around him rather than just himself. Ultimately, whether Jonah offered himself willingly Or resignedly? We don't know. And we can't know. My guess is because of what we've seen so far and what we see in chapter four, it was likely a more resigned recognition of the reality that faced him. What other choice did he have? So he tells them, Throw me overboard. Now the men, we see, for their part, don't immediately pick Jonah up and throw him overboard. They didn't seem to like the idea initially. Verse 13 says, instead, they rowed hard to try and get back to shore. Now, this, this detail is maybe small, but I think it's significant because it tells us how desperate these men are. Like, I'm not a sailor. I don't know if there's any sailors in the room. Any sailors in the room? All right, you're in good company then. Oh, one, okay. <laughs> but, but I'm not a sailor, but... I was thinking like, okay, if you're in a severe storm, like even I know, if you're in a severe storm, trying to get back to land is the worst thing you can do in a ship. Right? Like if you're in a storm, it's better to ride it out at sea. If they, if they had have made it to land, they likely would have crashed into the land. They likely would have broken up the ship that they were trying to get back there. So it shows their desperation because they would have known this. They're experienced sailors. Some commentators that I was reading, they actually believe that the men didn't initially throw Jonah over because they were being noble. Because they were being honorable men. They wanted to protect his life as much as they wanted to protect theirs. And that may be the case. And I like to think that that is the case. But I wonder if a stronger motivator than that was that they didn't want to upset Yahweh. They didn't want to upset this God. This this new God that they've discovered, this God that caused this storm to come, simply from Jonah running away from them. They didn't want to throw him overboard, essentially killing him. They didn't know whether to trust Jonah. And if they threw him overboard, they would be throwing him to his death. I'm sure the men were thinking, okay, if this God sent this massive storm because he ran away, what is he going to do to us if we kill this man? And we we see that mindset in verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. We see for the first time here in this verse, the men turn and call out to God directly. They, They call out to him. and They're basically saying to him, please don't hold us accountable for Jonah's death. You, Lord, have seen fit to punish him in this way as it pleased you. Uh, We've we've tried to get to shore, that didn't work. He's telling us what needs to happen, and if we don't do it, it seems that we're all going to perish. So we feel like we're left with no choice. Please do not punish us for throwing this man overboard. They cry out to the Lord for mercy, they believe that they may be guilty. If they choose to end this man's life, and so they ask for mercy. In verse 15, they pick up Jonah and hurl him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. You can imagine in that moment if you were on that boat, right? They throw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. It worked! Right? Thank the Lord, it worked! The storm calmed, which I'm sure was an assurance to them that that God would not hold them accountable for throwing this man overboard, possibly ending his life. They didn't know God had a fish that was going to pick him up. They had no idea. They assumed he died. And the men's response in the aftermath of this experience that happened to them is described in verse 16. It's interesting. It says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's believed that this verse is actually a postscript to the scene that's happened. And and what is portrayed in this verse likely happened sometime after the events on the ship. And that is reasonable to conclude because first of all, the men had thrown all of their goods overboard, so they had nothing to sacrifice to the Lord. And at this time, sacrifices had to be done in the temple in order for them to be done properly. And so it's likely that the events in verse 16 happen later, and, and it shows the effect that this had on the men. It even goes so far as to say they made vows, Meaning that they must have vowed to the Lord to continue their worship of him in some way. Was this saving faith? We don't know. Was it a faith that just added him into the multiple other gods that they had? We don't know. But we know that they came to know the Lord, to worship the Lord in some way. And So this is the scene that we see in verses 10 to 16. And as I've already said, the pinnacle of this, these verses is Jonah's sacrifice. We see, though imperfectly, the act of substitution from Jonah for the sake of the men on board the ship. It is a clear foreshadowing of the perfect substitution of our Lord Jesus Christ for you and for me and for anyone who would place their faith in his work on the cross. And his resurrection from the dead. And Jesus himself points to this. When Jesus says in Matthew 12 39, no sign shall be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What we've just looked at, and subsequently verse 17 that depicts Jonah's three days and nights in the fish after his sacrifice, is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 12. Jonah was a substitutionary sacrifice for the lives of the men, and something greater has come. Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice for the lives of all people, needed for all people. And while Jonah points to Jesus, Jesus is so much greater than Jonah. Jonah was guilty. He was the one who caused the storm. Jesus was innocent. We are the ones that cause the storm. Jonah saved a few on a boat. Jesus saves countless all over creation and will restore all of creation that is groaning under the curse of sin. Jonah was rebellious and resigned to his fate. Jesus was obedient and willing to enter into the suffering that he knew would come. Jesus is the greater Jonah. And this leads me to you and I. And why this matters. Jesus in all things is our example. He is the one we look to. We not only revel in his sacrifice, but as his people, we learn to live with the same spirit. Love was the foundation and the driving force to his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. And as I said at the very start, we are to love others in the deepest, most profound way possible. And that is done in the same spirit as what we see on the cross of Jesus Christ and imperfectly in Jonah's sacrifice. Jesus himself said it very clearly in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life For his friends. This is substitutionary, sacrificial love. And Jesus tells us we have nothing greater to give. We have no greater capacity to love another person than in this way. It is the deepest and it is the richest form of love that we can live out. Jacques Allul writes, This is the example of the Christian way. Brothers and sisters, there are so many definitions of what love is in our world. And most of them are wrong. And most of them are empty. And most of them are self-serving. We are called to something so much greater, so much more impactful by our Lord and King, We are called to love in the same way that he has modeled for us. It is a love that comes with a deep personal cost. And the question is, are we willing to pay it? It is not easy. And in the busyness of everyday life, it takes intentionality and it takes deep submission to the Spirit of God who resides within us. How do you know that you're loving someone in this kind of way? Are you willing to be inconvenienced? Are you willing to be misunderstood, even by other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if you love in this way, even those in the church will misunderstand you. Are you willing to face persecution and affliction as a result of loving another person? Are you willing to face those things even for someone who is an enemy? Are you willing to give up your reputation? Are you willing to give up your comfort? Are you willing to give up a position of strength in order to take a position of weakness? Are you willing to make a personal exchange to substitute your life for another person? This is the greatest love that we have to give. And it's not always extreme. It's not always as extreme as being thrown overboard or being nailed to a cross or literally laying down your life. Though for some, it does mean that. All over the world, it means that for followers of Christ. But the spirit of this kind of love Can be brought into any and every situation. It'll be present in healthy marriages as husband and wife mutually serve and sacrifice and lay down themselves for the other. It will be seen in a proper parent child relationship. Mom and dad have to put a lot on hold to raise their kids. They have to lay down much in their own lives in order to raise up their children. I know this deeply well right now. It's a personal thing for me now. Four young kids demand much. This pattern of love will be seen in reaching lost people. This pattern of love should be seen in the church. It's part of bearing with one another. It's part of understanding that some brothers and sisters in Christ are weaker than others. This is what we're called to. Mark 10, 45 For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's just think about what that means. Think about what it can practically mean in your life. Maybe if you're a parent of kids, what does it mean for your kids? Maybe you're newly married. Maybe you want to be married. What does it mean for your spouse? Maybe you've been married for 20 years. What does it mean for your husband or your wife? What does it mean for that man or that woman that you come across that doesn't know Jesus? What does it mean for that moment in the day when you have a plan and God's like, well, Do you go ahead with that plan or do you turn aside to what the Lord wants to do? It is so hard to live like this in the busyness of our everyday. It it takes intentionality. We we were talking about at our our men's group on Tuesday night about how you have to work hard at your faith. Not, Not from a saving perspective, but you have to work hard at your faith. It takes effort. But Even the Son of Man came not to be served but be served and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's do the same. Let's pray. Father, even as I preach this word, I recognize the difficulty of living it out. Because like Jonah, we are all imperfect, every single one of us. And we won't do it perfectly. But oh God, we have the Spirit within us. And through that Spirit, we are able to do wonderful things. And so Lord, help us in the busyness of every day. Take moments and seek you for the sake of our spouses, for the sake of our children, for the sake of those who are lost and those who are broken. This is how your people will reach the world. Those in this room, this is how they will reach the world. By laying down their own desires, their own wants, And so, Father, help us to crucify the flesh. Help us to remove sin that at times clings so closely. Help us, Father, to be less selfish. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the example of your Son. And we thank you first and foremost for what it means that we live free because of it.